0: morning, let us begin by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we begin this morning by thanking you that every word we've sung this morning is true. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow us thank you that every word that we have read in the scriptures this morning is true these glorious truths from the psalms that comfort us about your presence and care for us we thank you father that the things we're about to read in the scriptures they're all true all of it true A glorious thing, Lord, for us to be here together and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you for this. We, we pray that as we read your word together, as we study it, that your spirit would minister to us. I pray that it would be so evident here that we would almost palpably sense him working. would impress upon us that you are our Father, the tremendous links that Christ has gone to to make that so, that we would be encouraged and comforted by this and moved to endure until he returns. thank you, Father, that we can pray these things boldly and we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Last week we, we did an overview of, of this second letter from Paul to the Thessalonians. This morning we're going to just tip our toe into the f- first verses of the letter. I invite you to stand with me as we read these first two verses again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. I don't know all of you well, but I I, I know our congregation well enough that I think I can say with a good degree of, of certainty that we don't have a lot of endurance athletes among us. I'm certainly not an endurance athlete. I've, I've endured a few Barbara Streisand movies. That's about it. But we, we have a few endurance athletes, uh, those people who run the long races, they do the long bike rides, the long swims. You can ask them what that experience is like. There's great anticipation at the beginning of the race, the, the exhilaration at the first, but eventually those glycogen, glycogen stores, they do run out, and the muscle cramps set in, the fatigue comes, eventually there's bona fide pain, and it becomes at some point more a battle of the mind than the body. You begin to be plagued with th- Thoughts. That make it difficult to finish the race. Thoughts like it's forever to the finish line and I'm already spent. Thoughts like I'm not even halfway or I'm not sure this knee can make it or maybe quitting wouldn't be the worst thing in the world or I, I just don't have the energy to finish. Now some people have the practiced ability counteract those natural thoughts by intentionally telling them the, themselves the opposite. Other people really struggle to hear anything other than those negative, discouraging thoughts in their own heads. They need somebody else encouraging them. They need somebody else saying things to them like, think about your family. They're waiting at the finish line. Think about what it'll be like to see their faces as you cross that finish line. They need somebody saying things to them like, think about everything that you've invested in this, all the training, all the time. Think about that prize at the end of the race. Don't give up now. You're doing well. Look at how far you've come. Keep it up. We're so proud of you. We're so proud of how you're doing this. Just Encouraging words. Encouraging words counteracting the discouraging words in their own minds. For many people, that that is the only way that they're able to keep pushing, finish the race. The Thessalonians are feeling the pain of the race in the form of persecution and affliction, persecution being that specialized form of suffering that comes as a direct result of our association with the Lord Jesus Christ. Affliction being a broader form of suffering that can mean almost anything. We, we don't use the word affliction in colloquial English. We would just say trouble. Trouble can mean a whole lot of things. The Thessalonians, they are being persecuted and they are experiencing trouble, and so they are troubled. Paul wants them to endure, though. He wants them to cross the finish line. And so he writes this urgent letter to a troubled church. And the main message of this letter is stand firm in the truth by God's power and thereby obtain the glory of Christ. If you were not here last week, you could listen to last week's message online and it will explain that main message of this letter. But here at the very beginning of this letter Paul begins to communicate that main idea by giving them words of encouragement. This first chapter is all about words of encouragement. And by doing this, by giving these words of encouragement, Paul's actually is actually following his own teaching from his first letter. If you remember chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5:14, Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. He said he said we urge you brothers admonish the idol Encourage the faint-hearted. That's exactly what He's doing for them right now. He's encouraging the faint-hearted. He's encouraging the discouraged. And we're going to find in in this message, the next message, perhaps the next two messages, reasons to be encouraged in difficult times. Reasons to be encouraged in difficult times. I've been accused over the years of preaching too slowly through books of the Bible. And to be fair, that accusation has been leveled at me almost exclusively by me. I have felt the pressure since the very beginning of this church to get as much Scripture in front of you as I can while the Lord gives me breath, and yet it happens occasionally that I encounter things in my study that to me seem, would seem to be a pulpit crime to just quickly gloss over. And so it happens this morning that we're going to go very slowly, and in a sense, I'm not even going to preach these entire two verses, it would be more appropriate to say I'm going to preach one word from these two verses. We could look at it as two words, so I won't get into semantics, but I've not provided notes for you. We don't do that very often, but I haven't given you notes. I would prefer that you just take it in. I'm not forbidding notes. If you want to write some things down that you find helpful or challenging or encouraging, convicting, you're free to do that, but... I've not wanted to distract you with the notes. Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians. He wants to give a first reason to be encouraged in the greeting of this letter which is in the first two verses. And if we were if we were to take the greeting of this second letter to the Thessalonians and compare it to all the greetings of Paul's letters, we might conclude well Paul's just taking his customary hello and, and say, well, let's just move on because this is very similar to his greeting from all his other letters. However, if we look closely at Paul's letters, we might, we might notice that he tends to do very subtle things in his greetings that serve the purpose of those specific letters. That may not always be the case, but it's frequently the case. And when we compare his first letter to the Thessalonians with this second letter to the Thessalonians, we do see something subtle yet theologically significant arise. And what arises is one reason to be encouraged during times of difficulty. I'll spell out what that one reason is once we have developed it. Now, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 reads this way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.1 reads this way. Paul, Sylvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. One word is different. Not God the Father, but God our Father. So, are, are we really in the business now of making mountains out of possessive pronouns? Well, perhaps we should be. Because of what the Bible teaches about itself in places like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Hebrews 4, 12, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, other places, we, we believe in something called verbal plenary inspiration verbal plenary inspiration M- many of us are going to be familiar with the concept of the inspiration of scripture that is that that all scripture is breathed out by god verbal plenary inspiration is a phrase that that theology nerds use to be a little bit more specific about what we mean by the inspiration of scripture verbal meaning The actual words themselves, not not just the ideas that we find in Scripture, but the actual words of Scripture, verbal, plenary, all the words, all the actual words are inspired by God. Verbal, plenary, inspiration refers to the conviction that every actual word of the Bible has been meaningfully chosen by the Holy Spirit. But why would the Thessalonians, why would we think that the Thessalonians would notice that one little word? I would present to you that, that if I noticed it, certainly they would have. Have you, ever, have you ever received a personal letter from someone that was so meaningful to you that you read it so many times that you inadvertently memorized it? Has anybody ever had a, had a situation like that? Any of you who are married likely exchanged love letters from that 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 spouse, that significant other. My wife and I exchanged love letters when we were dating. Still got all of those love letters. Read them many many times, and inadvertently committed committed them to heart. I think it's a virtual certainty that some in the church there in Thessalonica had committed. To memory, either intentionally or inadvertently, the content of the first letter that Paul had written to them. It was written directly to them. They knew this man. He knew them. It contained such encouraging words. It was meaningful to them. And having read it so many times, having heard it read so many times, the very first thing that they would have noticed when hearing the second letter read would have been that little word, our in verse 1 wait that's different that's a different word that is not what he said in the first letter to us having known the first letter so well they likely would have also remembered from chapter 2 that Paul wrote to them in that first letter we also thank God for this that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you received it not as the word of men but as what it really is, the Word of God. In other words, these people, when they received words from Paul, they received them as from God. So it is likely, highly likely, that as they're listening to this second letter from Paul, they're receiving these word choices, not as merely Paul's word choices, but God's word choices. The second thing that they would have noticed is that whereas the greeting of the first letter they received from Paul said, grace to you and peace... Well, this second letter has something different. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, they're used to the Father. Our Father's different. They've not heard this before. But we, we might ask, as they might have asked, why would the Holy Spirit do that? Why would the Holy Spirit have chosen this different word? What significance is there in that one little word? Remember that the initial intention here is to bring words of encouragement to the Thessalonians so that they'll continue to endure to the end. And There is a ton of gospel encouragement in that little word, our, for those who know the gospel, which the Thessalonians did. And we know the gospel. If we're reading slowly and carefully, the little word, our, in our Father, it can, it can buoy our hearts, our Father, can buoy our hearts in times of difficulty. So that's what we're doing this morning. We are mining gospel encouragement from our, our Father. There's tremendous encouragement from that truth in times of difficulty. You know, we we are all conceived in this life as spiritual orphans. Because we're in Adam, we're we're somewhat unique orphans. Our conception of an orphan in this life is somebody who has been abandoned by a parent. We're unique in that God didn't abandon us, but we abandoned God. Tempted by God in the garden, I'm sorry, tempted by the enemy in the garden, The first man and woman decided that life without God would be better than life under God. They they rejected the truth that they had already lived, which which is so beautifully communicated, this this truth. In Psalm 63, the psalmist writes that, that your steadfast love is better than life. Adam and Eve knew that to be true. They'd lived it. Your steadfast love is better than life, but they rejected that. And so they, they were doomed to death. The Bible teaches that, that we, too, rejected God and have been doomed to death. Everyone descended from Adam, that is everyone on this planet, has been conceived with a disposition to likewise reject God. That's why we're so naturally self-centered. Self-centeredness. Pride is the purest expression of life without God. And and it's incredibly offensive to this God who is humble and kind and holy and just. Because He's holy and just, our sin therefore dooms us before Him to not only spiritual death in this life, but to eternal separation from Him in hell upon our physical death. But the Bible describes this blessed mystery that that perhaps is going to remain something that we're incapable of understanding ever. This this blessed mystery that this God, while having a disposition of wrath toward our sin, loved us, loved His enemies, loved those who estranged themselves from Him. He loved us and so, so longed to give Himself back to us that He set into motion this plan that even though it's been accomplished, it still boggles the mind. He gave His own eternal Son to live righteously in our place And to die in our place and then to be raised from the dead so that His righteous and new life might be ours eternally and our sin and wrath might be killed in Him on the cross. And even though we know that the Scriptures teach this and history confirms it, it still boggles the mind that God would love us in this way. It has happened. And, And all those... All those who turn from their sin and surrender all that they are and have in faith to this Jesus, they receive His righteousness. They receive His eternal life. Their sins are forgiven and they're reconciled to God. But, but here's something that we need, we need to keep in mind as we're thinking about this, this thing of our Father. It, it is possible, it would be possible for us to be reconciled to God without His being our Father. We could be reconciled to God without His being our Father. You might want to turn in your Bible to John chapter 10. We're going to be in the book of John for for a few minutes here. John chapter 10. Jesus in the book of John, so often referred to God as my Father or the Father. It would be worth your time to read the whole thing looking just at that, how, how Jesus referred to God. It's always my Father, the Father. Even in passages where Jesus describes God's glorious and overabundant intention to save us, He refers to God as my Father, the Father, never, never our, our Father or your Father. Here's an example in John chapter 10. Look at verse 28. Speaking of His sheep, his, his disciples, His people, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father, who has given them to Me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, these verses are some of of the greatest verses of encouragement in all the Bible, are they not? And I love these verses. Raise your hand if you have ever found comfort in the idea that Christ, through whose omnipotent voice the world was spoken into existence, through the, the word of whose power all things are held in existence. He has you and he refuses to let you go. Raise your hand if you've ever found comfort in that. Yes, I love it. What about, what, what about the, the second thing that he says here? The father who says, my word always accomplishes that for which I send it out. The father who says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That father says, I have you. No one's going to snatch you from my hand. Raise your hand if you've ever found comfort from that. Yes, we love that. It's precious comfort, precious encouragement. And were we to derive, were we to derive the totality of God's saving intention for us from these three verses in John, we would have reason to praise Him forever and ever. For God to save us rebels and hold on to us forever, but for God to remain Jesus' Father, the Father, and not our Father, that would be grace upon grace upon grace. But we are not intended to derive the totality of God's saving intention from those three verses. Now pause for a minute and take those three verses, the truth that they contain, to hold those in your mind and heart. An omnipotent Father and Son, Pledging to hold you for eternity, refusing to let go against any attempt to pry you away, the Godhead saying, Mine about you. You got that? And now the Holy Spirit says, There's more. There's more. Turn with me to John 17. John 17. Jesus, who who always sought to pray in concert with the will of the Father, asked for more for us. John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory of that I had with you before the world existed. Now there's just a, a couple of pertinent points that we want to note here. And the first of those is that the Trinity shared something exclusive and wonderful in eternity past. The Trinity shared something exclusive and wonderful in eternity past. We could bring in other scriptures to fill this out, but for the sake of time, we'll stay here the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit's not mentioned in this passage, but He is in prior chapters. They shared something perfect, joyful, this loving fellowship from eternity past. And because the persons of the Trinity alone existed in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, this was an exclusive fellowship. They alone were there, they alone had it. What Jesus is referring to as he talks about the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. It, it was theirs alone. But we we derive from these verses an intention of the Father to share. The Father desired to share. That's the second thing to note from these verses. Specifically, he wanted to share himself. He wanted to share himself and the Son. He sent the Son, to the earth, as we all already noted, to give Him, the Father, back to us. As, as Jesus says here in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And so Jesus came and manifested the Father to all that the Father has given Him. But then we, we, we come back to this truth that Jesus could have done that. He could have given the Father to us. And God still could have remained the Father and not our Father. We could know God without God being our Father. He could have just still been God to us. God, Jesus, Father. But jump down to verse 20 and look at what Jesus prays. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only. He's praying for, for his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word. Now pause right there. I love that the Spirit recorded this for us so that you and I can know for certain that this precious prayer is not only for those, those first disciples but, but for you and me. Jesus had you and I in His mind and heart as He's praying before He goes to the cross. And what is it that the Master prayed for us on that night? Look at verse 21. That they may all be one. That you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There's a world of wonder here. And we have nowhere near the time to mine even a fraction of it. But for our purposes this morning, let's just notice that Jesus did not desire for us to have something different eternally than he did. It It is staggering. That, that, that unity that, that the Trinity enjoyed, the, the joy of fellowship that, the, that God had had with one another in eternity past. Jesus wanted to return to that. He prayed for it back up in verses 1 through 5. The glory that I had with you from the beginning, Father, let, let, let me have that back. Jesus wants to go back to that. But He's praying here that, that He would be able to bring us into it with Him. Now let's keep in mind that the eternity that we've many times over is hell, torment away from His glorious presence. And so anything other than hell is unfathomable grace. And and that means that, that for us then to simply sit on the sidelines in heaven, to sit on these heavenly bleachers on the outside and just watch Just watch the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy each other. Just watch them do that. That would be joy imaginable, unimaginable. Jesus wanted more for us than that. Jesus prayed that we would have what they have with them, with them. Peek back up at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now jump back down to verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Can you believe this? Jesus brings us into the glory given Him by the Father. Now, to what end? Continuing in verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one, in the same way that we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And it's so clear here in this passage that, that Jesus does not envision our being one over here and the, the Trinity being one over here in two separate parties, but our being one with them. Verse 21, that they may all be one Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus prayed before the cross, and because it's recorded for us by the Spirit, signaled that it was the Father's intention that we would be brought into that exclusive fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there is the hint here in Jesus' prayer that the nature of Christ's relationship with the Father would be extended to us. We wouldn't have a different standing before the Father than Jesus did eternally, but we would have the same standing with the Father that Jesus did. In other words, there's the hint here that like Christ, we would be sons and daughters. And, 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 and that, that, that idea is strengthened by this extraordinary thing that we read, The end of verse twenty-three that you loved them even as you loved me. The Father loves us like He loves Jesus. The Father loves His Son. But we might we might then think, well, this this is this is just a prayer, and not all prayers are answered. And we might then remember, but all all the time through through the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to God as. The father, my father, never calls him your father, our father. Well, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. John chapter 20 records the resurrection of the Lord after his death three days prior. John 20. Earlier in, in early in chapter 20, it's recorded that Mary Magdalene went to the Lord's tomb and saw the stone rolled away. She, she went and then reported that to a couple of the disciples who came to investigate. Then they, they went back home, leaving her alone again outside the tomb. Look with me beginning at verse 11, John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brother's. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And so the prayer, Jesus' prayer, John 17, has been answered in the affirmative. The means by which that prayer has been answered is Jesus' own death and resurrection. His death and resurrection secured our share in His full glory so that Jesus is our brother. God is our Father. I've recently read a a, a little book entitled Enjoy Your Prayer Life. Enjoy Your Prayer Life. You You could probably read it in a half an hour. Really little. I've described it to other people as a, as a little stick of dynamite. It's fantastic. And it characterizes prayer as the, the principal way that we enjoy this privilege of entering into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because we're in Christ, sharing in His glory, brought into the fellowship of the Godhead by the blood of, of Jesus. And because God is our Father and because Jesus has told us, to pray to the Father in His name, because all these things are true, John Calvin said that we pray, as it were, through Jesus' mouth. Isn't that wonderful? That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. I highly recommend that little book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life. Christ our brother, God our Father. And now we can read back into John 10, 28 through 30, that it is as our brother that Christ will not let us go. It's as our father that God holds us. No one will pry us from his hands. Clearly, John 10 has that that idea of possession. We belong to him. But it is, it's, it's not a relationship of owner and cattle, but it is of God and child, father and child. God is our Father. So let's, let's turn our attention back to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, these people are suffering. They're being persecuted, which means they're suffering specifically because of their association with the name of Jesus because Paul uses the word affliction also, they're they're, they're suffering more broadly as well. They're suffering a range of difficulties like us. So think about your own recent difficulties, your own recent suffering. What, What are the thoughts that come at us pertaining to God during prolonged difficulty? What are the thoughts that attack us pertaining to God when we're suffering? They could take many forms, but they may sound like he has forgotten about me. He has abandoned me. Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians, no, this God is our father. He could never abandon us. He has gone to the greatest of lengths to secure this relationship Forever. And if you read the entire opening chapter of 2 Thessalonians, the words here describe God as a protective father. We won't read all of this, but verses 4 and 5, in verses 4 and 5, Paul acknowledges this persecution and affliction that the Thessalonians are enduring. And he then brings up the coming wrath of God. Look with me at verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 1 6. away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, what is the reason for God's wrath when it comes? We're to ask this question. Our typical answer to that question might be something like God's wrath comes because of man's rebellion against Him, or because of man's sin against God? And that that answer is absolutely correct. But this passage gives us a little bit of perspective on God's wrath in that it indicates that God has the heart of a Father behind the coming wrath. Let me explain that to you. This, This passage describes those who are going to experience the wrath of God in two ways. He describes those who are going to experience the wrath of God in two ways. He first of all describes them as those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus. And what that indicates is that God receives it as a personal offense to Himself. It's a sin against Himself for people to reject Jesus. It draws His wrath for people to reject Jesus, and that makes all kinds of sense when we remind ourselves that God is Jesus' Father. God is a protective Father. There's a second way that that Paul describes those who are going to experience wrath on the last days. He describes them as those who afflict you, believers. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. If we were to read the whole book of Revelation, it, th- th- that, that book would confirm this. Our Father receives it as a personal sin against Himself for others to mistreat you. Also indicating that behind the wrath of God, there is the heart of a Father. We could extend that to all affliction, and say that there is the heart of a Father observing our affliction. many of you know that i have i have a congenital heart condition that becomes it becomes more serious as i age i'm not in i'm not in imminent danger right now but but each time i have tests done and and see the doctor and it's confirmed that the condition is progressing i tend to have a season of discouragement and i've had one of those seasons here in recent weeks and last night was particularly difficult for me. I was, I was awake half the night battling my own thoughts, uh, just really fighting to think rightly about these things. I got out of bed this morning particularly troubled and went down to the basement to spend time with the Lord as I, as I always do and for several for several years I've I've been using my phone to listen to sacred instrumental music, piano music by a musician named David Baroni, while I spend time with the Lord. So this morning that's what I did. Pulled up David Baroni on my phone, hit shuffle, and because I was troubled, I just began by crying out to the Lord. Father, I, I desperately need you. I am troubled please help me. And those last couple of words were hardly out of my mouth when I heard singing coming from my phone. And it startled me because that has never happened before. I've been doing this for years. Never has a song with lyrics come out of this playlist. It's instrumental music. I was not aware that David Baroni has any song with lyrics. thought he was just a piano player. So I was startled by it when I when I listened to the words, I was more startled because it was, it was obvious to me that this was not a random song. I, I want to read the opening lines of this song that I heard this morning, this song that I heard immediately after asking the Lord for help. These were the first words of that song. Child, I am here. Child, I am here. I am your father, God. I know your name. I've been with you through the valley. I know right where you are. I know how you feel. I know you get afraid sometimes. I know you want to run away sometimes. I am singing over you. I am bringing you my comfort. This is a a song based on Zephaniah 3.17. Which says that the Lord sings over His people. Virtually every word of the song comes from the Bible. I, I would play it for you, but it's it's long. But I, I'll tell you, every, every word of this song was for me. This, this song was s- subtitled a "Spontaneous." Spontaneous song. David Baroni apparently sat down at the piano, didn't write it the way you typically write a song. He just sat down and started recording. But I picked up my phone and looked at it. The name of the song is Father's Heart. It's the title track to one of Baroni's albums, and the album cover has an EKG on it. An EKG is a a cardiac test that I've had done a hundred times over the course of my life. A coincidence? You'll never convince me there was. Our Father, our Father. That little word, our, just little word, obvious to one well familiar with the first letter. And that little word should, should prime us to receive this first reason to be encouraged in difficulty. God is our Father, a Father whose, whose eye is on us, who is not blind to our suffering. He's not neglected us. He, he will act. He's poised to bring us relief at the right time. He's with us in Christ. He's with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's His power, as we'll see in in coming weeks, it's His power that's at work in us to see us through and help us endure. What a pleasure, what a pleasure to make a mountain out of a possessive pronoun. Amen. Or more appropriately, perhaps we should say what a pleasure to stop and savor this one little word, to savor it rightly. There's a, there's a world of glory in that little pronoun, our, our Father. He is mine. He's yours eternally. He's ours together in Christ. He's ours together with Christ. So let us grab that truth and let us endure the end. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, your generosity to us in the gospel is astounding and Truly, it, it can only be explained as the heart of a father giving to his children. We thank you for it. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. Lord, I want to pray for, for those here who are troubled, that they would, they would regard you as children looking to their father that they would believe the truth that you, you think of them as children and that you have your eye on them, that you love them. The gospel proves it. This extraordinary thing of going beyond reconciliation to adoption is, is proof of your extraordinary love. And I pray that, that all present who are struggling would be encouraged and moved to endurance. Endurance to the finish line. Father, I pray for others present who might not know you at all this morning. Who right now who right now are still under the weight of their own sin, estranged from you. I ask Lord that you would help them to see rightly their situation. That estrangement from you is the worst possible predicament that a person could be in. That they would feel the reality of hell, the reality of eternity in hell away from you. That you would grant them to feel how dire is that future, how certain is that future outside of Christ. And Lord, help them now to see the beauty of this Jesus who dies on the behalf of sinners to reconcile them, that they might become children of His Father. Please grant them repentance and faith this morning, that they might be adopted into your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name.